0: But the the large, vast majority of cases, the Greek Septuagint uh, says exactly what we would expect it to say based on the Masoretic text. Uh, And that matters because it it shows us that 1,300 years prior to the 10th century, the Hebrew Bible that the Septuagint translators were looking at said the same exact thing uh, as our Masoretic text.
1: Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything.
2: Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at santaanareformed at gmail.com or find the link in our show notes to be added to our list.
1: Hello, everyone, and yet it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is Spark Notes Seminary by Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Please check out our show notes for a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters and a link to Napark churches if you're looking to find a Reformed church near your area. So today's guest will be introduced by Peter here in a minute, Dr. Ross, and we're going to be talking about the Septuagint. So Peter, please further introduce Dr. Ross today. Yeah, I would love to. So we have Dr. William A. Ross of Reformed
2: Theological Seminary in Charlottes. He's assistant professor of Old Testament at RTS in Charlotte, joined the faculty in 2019, teaches a bunch of courses on the Old Testament, ancient languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. He's a teaching elder in the PCA, studied at Cambridge, uh, has been part of uh, a lot of translation projects on the Septuagint, and just overall, he's been working on Septuagint. So we wanna have him on to talk about this and, and why it matters for your average person. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Ross.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks, Peter, Nick, it's great to be with you guys.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and we're, this term even Septuagint, I think <laughs> yeah. a lot of people don't know what that What are the they talking about? So, yeah, let's just go right in. Let's just jump right in. What is the Septuagint, and how does it differ in the Old and the New Testament?
0: Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, it's definitely a funny word. Uh, it's not one of those words that you tend to hear a whole lot, even in church circles. Um, one place you may bump into it uh, in your sort of daily devotional time is that the uh, sort of bottom or side margins of your Bible. If you've got a study Bible every once in a while, you'll see it mm-hmm. down there. If you're the sort of person that looks at those notes anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which lick is. <laughs> <laughs> We're out there. Just hey. there. Um, the Septuagint is, is a term uh, that has its problems, but it generally refers to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was made in antiquity by the ancient Jewish community itself. Uh, So that is the basic, uh, that is the basic concept of what we're talking about here.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, As to how does this differ? Well, um, obviously it differs from sort of standard Old Testament, if you will, in the sense that usually when we talk about the Old Testament, uh, we are talking in terms of the Hebrew Bible, right? When we Open up our English Bible, whatever translation we may be using. It is based uh, as a translation on the Hebrew Bible itself, right? Represented by various manuscripts. Uh, we can go into that if you want to. But uh, so so the Greek Old Testament is based on Hebrew uh, text as well. But it was translated, obviously, into Greek uh, a long time ago. Almost, uh, well, over 2,000 years ago now. Uh, it was translated... Uh, over the course of several centuries, beginning sometime in the mid-3rd century B.C., uh, and then translated continuously book by book over the next three centuries or so, probably uh, finishing sometime in the mid-1st century, maybe even to the early 2nd century A.D., So um, obviously it differs, the Septuagint differs from the New Testament as well, uh, because it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Uh, but it was uh, in existence, so to speak, during the time when the New Testament itself was being written. Uh, And so uh, it is part of the uh, textual and conceptual world of the New Testament authors uh, and the ancient Jewish community as well, although there's lots of important qualifications to uh, to hang on all of that. So that's the basic outline. Hmm.
2: That's good. Yeah, and kind of thinking about the New Testament as well. So when we read the New Testament, there's there's quotations from the Septuagint in that as well. And how how does that how does it influence how we read the New Testament? Understanding that there's some like. Because like this is hard for me to think about, hard for others to think about. When he, when they quote from the Old Testament, are they quoting from the Septuagint? Are they quoting from the Hebrew Bible? Like, how does that, how does that work?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is where most of the important qualifications come. Um, so a- after just defining what the Septuagint is, I now need to deconstruct what the Septuagint is <laughs> <laughs> um, because in, in a very important sense, there is no Septuagint okay um and what i mean by that is there is it, we have to understand what the Septuagint isn't. Um, it is it is not a a coherent, uh and monolithic translation produced all at once uh with a sort of coherent strategy wasn't like that like the I
2: popular think. story for a long time was like one like it was over one year 70 scholars
0: yeah, so there is, a, there is a legendary account of the origins of the Greek Pentateuch, anyway, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That is accounted uh, recounted in an ancient document called the Letter of Aristeas. Um, and people have taken the Letter of Aristeas more or less seriously over the last 2,000 years, but essentially at this point... Uh, it's widely recognized as as a fabrication, uh, fictitious. But the account there is there are 72 uh, elders that come down to Egypt uh, from Jerusalem Uh, because at this point in history, uh, Egypt is ruled by uh, the Ptolemies. Hellenistic uh, Greek Empire was set up in uh, 331 or so by, uh, by Alexander the Great's general, Ptolemy I. And so the whole Mediterranean world is speaking Greek at this point. So the legend goes that these uh, translators come down, they're commissioned by the Ptolemaic Emperor to come down to Egypt and to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek themselves. They go off into separate uh, you know study carols essentially as they work on it. it. takes them 72 days. They all come back and compare notes and every single one of their translations is, letter identical, right, to each other, right? So this is sort of the, the mythical origins of the Greek Pentateuch. Um, so, yeah, modern scholarship uh, ha- has very little um, uh, in favor of that particular account at this point, um, but there are certain aspects of it which are, which are more or less accurate or helpful, right? It was uh, probably begun, the translation in the third century uh, uh, BC among the Jews living in Egypt. Uh, there may have been some kind of royal sponsorship by the Hellenistic kings at that point. Uh, it's hard to say for sure. Um, however, uh, what, what didn't happen, again, is that it wasn't all produced by one group uh, at one time with one translation strategy. So from the earliest time uh, some books were translated, others were translated later by different people, maybe in different places, all within the Jewish community, most probably within Egypt, maybe some in Palestine. Uh, so by the time you come to the New Testament period, uh, what we don't have is a, a tidy one volume book called The Septuagint that mm-hmm. Paul kept on his shelf, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the case. So, um Uh, In a certain sense, yes, the New Testament authors quoted from the Septuagint, uh, but we have to avoid the temptation to think about it as if it was a one-volume publication like the ESV or something. Gotcha. Yeah,
1: sounds like it was not done like in a vacuum.
0: No, uh, absolutely not. There there are a lot of factors uh, that went into uh, the translation. So, I mean, one question to ask is, why would the Jewish community do this? You know, what was their motivation? Uh, How did they have the opportunity to do it? And so forth. And uh, there's a lot of possible answers to that. Uh, One possible answer, which we just mentioned, is there may have been some form of royal uh, prompting or some kind of sponsorship by the Ptolemaic administration in Egypt at the time. Uh, There's lots of different aspects of how the Ptolemies ruled Egypt that lead us to believe it's possible they could have sponsored the Jewish community's religious life and practices in some ways. and Maybe some of that money was funneled toward a translation project. So there's some possibility there. But I think we also have to recognize there was some uh, internal motivation, right? Some kind of reason from within the Jewish community itself for wanting scriptures in Greek. And um, I think one obvious category is they wanted to continue reading their Bibles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, the Jewish communities mostly speaking Aramaic, as they have been since the exile uh, to Babylon. And once the Greeks took over the Mediterranean world, everyone starts speaking Greek. And so, for the sake of their children and children's children, they want a Bible. They continue to uh, read and uh, in their Houses of prayer and in their homes in a language that they can understand. Uh, Hebrew is falling out of use. And so that I think is a major factor in producing it as well. Um, so, yeah, but even like I said, as soon as the earliest translations were completed, you can kind of imagine it as a rolling process. Different books in the Old Testament corpus were translated slowly, bit by bit, you know, unit by unit over the following centuries, not all by the same people. And almost as soon as some of the earliest ones were finished um, and later ones begun, other people within the Jewish community kind of circled back and began to revise the earlier ones already in existence. So you actually have a few different what we could call translation traditions or preferences within this few centuries uh, of, of activity in the Jewish world as they're translating their Hebrew Bible. Right? Um, some of them wanted a very strict uh, one-to-one kind of representation in the translation, what, you know, we would popularly call a literalistic translation. Some were much more willing to be paraphrastic uh, and, and uh, kind of free, uh, and you might be tempted to say, to take liberty, liberties in their translation and how they uh, rendered a Hebrew text into Greek. Uh, and some were somewhere in the, in the middle, right? So, so there's lots of different factors that, that went into it. Um, no doubt about it.
1: Yeah. And it's only side question I have, uh, would be, so you can keep it kind of concise if you want, but the, the T word translation, and I (laughs) feel like a lot of critics just eat that up and they're like, so how, how you spoke about the Septuagint is related to translating it, and, and you described the background of that pretty well. How do we use actually the Septuagint as a, an apologetic or defense of the Bible against critics that are saying, oh, you're just talking about the Bible being translated, and it's been translated a bunch of times, so how do we know it's reliable?
0: Mm, yeah, great question. Um, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, The Septuagint can help us answer that. So uh, it actually helps us with respect to the Hebrew Bible uh, in a big way. So just to sort of break down some aspects of the Hebrew Bible, like I said, our English Bibles are based on the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, What is the Hebrew Bible? Well, Our best, every text we have, every ancient text, is passed down to us uh, by handwritten texts, copies of texts, over, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. So the best manuscript, the best ancient copy of the Hebrew Bible we have is uh, called Codex Leningradensis, okay? And it is a single codex, a big, fat, ancient book. Uh, that was produced uh, within a school of Jewish scholars called the Masoretes. And this school of Jewish scholars was active uh, in uh, about the 10th century A.D., uh, which, you know, is not quite ancient, right? It's sort of <laughs> medieval. Uh, but this is, this is our, our best, most complete text uh, textual witness to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, this is universally acknowledged among scholars, uh, conservative scholars, and otherwise, and all English Bibles, virtually speaking, are based on that single text. Okay, so that's just the breakdown. So one one thing a critic might say is, well, you know, the 10th century is still a thousand years after Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, So how could you possibly say that that text is reliable or stable or ancient, right? Well, one answer to that is the Septuagint, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, so in order to understand that, we have to kind of go one layer deeper. Um, Hebrew is written primarily with uh, consonants, okay? So if you go to modern Israel uh, today... You look at the road signs of the newspapers, their writing has consonants only, no vowels. Uh, it sounds crazy, but it's it's that's just how it goes. It's actually <laughs> not as hard as you think. Um, but ancient Hebrew writing was the same way. Um, and so uh, a lot of the uh, scrolls that are much more ancient uh, than the Codex Leningradensis have no vowels either. Uh the Masoretic text, that 10th century text that I mentioned, does have a system of vowels, which are called points uh, or nikud, right? pointing that goes around the consonants, that help you know what vowels to use as you read the text aloud. Okay. So here's how this connects with the Septuagint. Right? When we look at the Septuagint and the Masoretic text side by side, right? we compare them word for word. Um, what the Septuagint says in virtually all cases. Now, there are obviously exceptions and we can talk about those later. But the the large, vast majority of cases, the Greek Septuagint uh, says exactly what we would expect it to say based on the Masoretic text. Uh, And that matters because it, it shows us that 1300 years prior to the 10th century the hebrew bible that the septuagint translators were looking at said the same exact thing uh as our masoretic text cool
1: yeah thank you for that sorry about throwing that curveball question out there but <laughs> i know people are wondering it and yeah yeah for us to know as a defense so. no that's that's good yeah so the septuagint
2: provides an apologetic for that uh that question that's good
1: yeah. Does the Septuagint help us under uh, understand the our New and Old Testament right now? I know this is a kind of a repeated question in a little bit.
0: Yeah. So um, there's yes. The answer is definitely yes. Uh, lots of ways in which the answer is yes. So just to begin with the Old Testament itself, um, to piggyback on what we were just talking about, one of the ways that Septuagints always been valued is for its um, textual critical value. So when we're looking at the text of the Old Testament, uh, we have to gather all the available evidence, compare it, and use our best judgment scholarly methodologies to establish the most ancient form of the text. Um, And the Septuagint, as one of the most ancient witnesses to that Hebrew text, is a very important and valuable witness. So from from the perspective of, okay, where do you actually even get the Old Testament text, right? How do you, how do you determine what it said? Septuagint is a big uh, part of that, for sure. Um, beyond that, the Septuagint does help us understand a little bit more about the context of ancient Judaism. All right, so this is Judaism in, you know, what we would sometimes call the intertestamental period or the second temple period, late second temple period from about the third century through the time of the New Testament. Um, And this is a period in which uh, the Jewish community is uh, partly living back in Judea under Persian rule and then later under Roman rule, but also scattered in places all over the the Mediterranean and beyond. Um, And so what we see in the Septuagint uh, at times, and again, depends on what book you're looking at and kind of what tradition of translation translators were working with Uh, at points we do see glimmers of certain theological presuppositions on the part of the translators the jewish translators Um, and this can help us understand uh, something about how the jews at this time were reading their bible uh, and uh, by the same token help us understand the sort of Theological context in the in the ancient world that fed right into the New Testament period as well. Uh, So on that note, obviously the Septuagint can inform our understanding of the New Testament, right? Because it is true that you know when the uh, apostles and writers of the New Testament wanted to cite something from their Bible, right? Their Bible is the Old Testament, right? As they're writing the New Testament, if they want to look at scripture. They're looking at the Old Testament. Um, And as they do that, they themselves are Greek speakers living in a Greek-speaking world, right? It's a multilingual context, but pretty much everybody speaks Greek predominantly. And so they're going to be looking at the Old Testament scriptures in Greek. Um, And that is what they cite when they, you know, when Paul uh, or, or other authors of the New Testaments want to mount some argument, make a theological point and use scripture to do it, they say, you know, as it is written, and then they cite it and write it in Greek. Um, So, you know, there's a certain uh, sense in which the Septuagint is what they're using, but we have to keep in mind the kind of qualifications we mentioned before, right? There is no fixed uh, one volume, put it on your shelf kind of version of Septuagint. There are Greek translations in circulation in the Greek-speaking Mediterranean world at the time, uh, so all of that, uh, you know, as you can tell, it's very multifaceted uh, kind of situation. But there are lots of ways Septuagint feeds into both Old Testament studies uh, and understanding the Old Testament and its theology, and New Testament as well. Hmm. So, no, like a very real way, when kind of average
2: person is reading their English Bible, some of them are reading an English translation of the Septuagint when the Old Testament is
0: right, referred. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> and that that can raise some questions uh, in certain, uh, you know, to, to many people. Um, you know, is it, what does it mean that the, the te- Old Testament, sorry, New Testament authors cited a translation, right? And, rather than the original. Uh, what does that mean for our understanding of uh, the purpose and perspective of New Testament authors on scripture, does it, does it mean anything for our view of scripture, um, and so it can be a little um, discomforting at first, when you sort of first realize what's happening, but uh, there, really, there really isn't, maybe we do or don't want to get into this quite yet, but there really isn't much to worry about from my perspective. Um So I'll let you, you know, we can punt on that or come back to it or whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And we can, we can come back maybe and touch on that a little bit later, but kind of with all this and and knowing that your average person, like we said, is reading the Septuagint in a translation, whenever the old Testament's quoted, what, why do you think this has been such a neglected part of not church life necessarily, but how we Christians think about our Bible?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and I sort of stared at this question when you sent me the prompts a little while ago and I thought, uh, <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot that we could say here. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, I mean, I, not without trying to undermine my own area of specialism, but there, there really isn't much to alarm us uh, about the Septuagint, right? Uh, in the same way that our whole collection of ancient textual witnesses in whatever language, whether it's Greek or Latin or Syriac or whatever else, uh, presents uh, just a big bucket of data, right? There's, uh, we need to process it and work with it to the best of our ability to, um, to gain the most ancient and reliable text of scripture. So in some ways, um, you know, we don't think about it much because we, we as a Christian church read the Bible in our, in our mother tongue. Uh, whether it's English or whatever else around the world. Um, and I think that's good. That's right and sufficient. Um, from a more scholarly perspective, right, uh, when it comes to biblical scholarship proper, so to speak, uh, there are probably different reasons for why we don't talk much about it. Um, some of those reasons go back to the Reformation itself, actually. And uh, There's a whole very elaborate historical context, but essentially... For the most part, it's accurate to say that in uh, in the West, European West, knowledge of Greek essentially died out almost entirely uh, from about the fourth or fifth century through approximately the 15th century in Italy. Uh, and very few people knew much Greek. And those who did know Greek, uh, only knew it in a very qualified sense, right? Uh, so it's, it's really with the birth of Italian humanism and the Renaissance, uh, plus the fall of Constantinople and all the Greek scholars b- brought their texts and their knowledge of Greek to the West uh, in 1453, that uh, we began sort of in the West to have knowledge of Greek and Greek texts again, whether they be texts of the Bible or classics or whatever. Um, And so all of this cultural context is sort of swirling about. The Reformation takes place right around the same time. And the impulse within the Reformation to go back to the sources, right, ad fontes, is a humanistic impulse in many ways, right? It's the correct impulse, but it's part of the broader context. Um, And so there's quite a long history within um, the Protestant world and Reformed thought in particular it says what we want, uh, this is again the proper things want, but what we want is the Hebrew Bible. We want the Hebrew original, uh, and so all of our focus, all of our energies are, are going to, to that. Um, so, so it is true that the Septuagint's always been a big part of that, but with respect to the kind of attention uh, and the kind of importance of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint has always been a, a lot of ranks lower down on the ladder. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. So you, you're
1: obviously an expert on the Septuagint. <laughs> and this is uh, <laughs> more so than us. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Um, So what sparked your interest in the Septuagint?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I, I, to just sort of give some brief bio, I, um, Never really ever thought I would ever want to go to seminary, uh, much less teach at a seminary. Uh, Even into my college years, this wouldn't have crossed my mind for at least the first or second year. Uh, Ultimately, the Lord put numerous factors in place in my life that uh, that is what I began to desire to do. I thought about teaching as a vocation and uh, wound up going to Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, which is uh, almost literally a stone's throw from where I grew up as a child. Uh, so I, uh, and I didn't really know much about the seminary growing up, but so it was like going home for me in many ways. Um, but I, I went to Westminster Theological Semina- Seminary there, not really knowing what I would be interested in, if anything, uh, were I to go on to get a PhD and teach. Um I I thought it would be, you know, maybe something to do with apologetics or philosophy or whatever, and very quickly found out that I don't have a philosophical bone in my body, uh, or at least I didn't at that time, and it just wasn't for me. But um, I did find out, to my complete surprise, that I not only liked the languages, but I was actually good at them. And so uh, at the same time, I was really fascinated with Old Testament classes, So I was thinking, okay, maybe Old Testament and Hebrew is sort of my thing. Um, But uh, at that point, Greg Beal had just come to Westminster, Mm -hmm. and uh, I got the opportunity to be a TA for him. And as I began to do that, I was starting to grow in my love for Greek. And so I was tormented. You know, should I be a Hebrew guy? Should I be a Greek guy? You know, I was just... I'm
2: not sure anybody's ever been tormented between those two things. I know, (laughs) I know, I know.
0: know. There's... Not a lot of people,
2: yeah. <laughs> Should we do Greek or Hebrew? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I have no explanation for this. Um, but ultimately, um, I, I more or less bumped into the Septuagint by accident uh, in conversation with a professor after class. Uh, we did an independent study in Septuagint together, and that allowed me to you know, reconcile my love of the Old Testament and Hebrew with my desire to study Greek, and uh, so mm-hmm. so off I went. That was uh, kind of obvious to me what was really uh, a good fit for me academically. And as I read more about the field and became more and more acquainted with it, I just got so fascinated with it because it it really does touch on so many different things. Right, it touches on the Old Testament, it touches on textual criticism, textual history, uh, ancient Judaism. The New Testament, Patristic era, uh, and and all the way through, really the whole history of Christian and Jewish interpretation, there is so much of interest uh, mm-hmm. that that is connected right to the Septuagint. So, um, so yeah, that was it for me, and I, I still every day it seems learn something more about the Septuagint that just continues to spark my interest.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, even maybe building off of that too. So you've, you've touched on a couple of things, but what's What's something interesting about the Septuagint that most people with knowledge of it or without knowledge that don't know about the Septuagint that could help them out as a Christian or as an atheist who has questions about the faith um, can be helpful for them too?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> there are, again, so many possible answers to this question um, and sort of which one to choose, I think, would depend a little bit on who I'm talking to um there are for example so i'll give a pos- couple possible examples uh there are pockets within the christian american christian world uh especially in more fundamentalist baptist circles that uh, are are concerned to defend the kjv as the only legitimate bible uh in the more um uh how to put this diplomatically in the more convicted parts of that community there is a sense uh, and a claim that the Septuagint itself is completely fraudulent. uh, That it was essentially trumped up by some early church father um, and that there is no evidence whatsoever for the Septuagint prior to the time of Christ. Um, And this is false uh, and incorrect. Um, (laughs) part, Part of the reason for this for this view, uh, the concern I understand, um, but part of the reason is that uh, the Septuagint is viewed as including some of the Apocrypha, right? So books like 1st and 2nd Maccabees, uh, you know, Bell and the Dragon, the additions to Daniel, some of these other Apocryphal works, uh, Sirach, so forth and so on. Uh, And so the, the idea is, if that's true, if the Septuagint includes the Apocrypha in its canon, and if it's true that Jesus, especially, but also the apostles, cited the Septuagint, uh, that would grant legitimacy to those Apocryphal books as inspired scripture. Sure. That can't be true. Therefore, the Septuagint did not actually exist. Um, so uh, there is obviously, well, maybe it's not obvious, but there are flaws in that reasoning. Going back to what we said at the beginning, right? there was no the Septuagint in the, in the New Testament world. Uh, it's not that it was bound together as a book with a table of contents, right? Like like you would need to mm-hmm. draw that conclusion. Um, so so um, there's and there is actually quite good evidence for the Septuagint uh, or Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible in the centuries prior to the time of Christ. Um, so so there may or may not be listeners to this podcast who are who are nearby or within communities. Uh, who are making those claims, but I would say that it is uh, important to understand some of these more historical uh, and textual aspects of the Septuagint uh, to be able to fend off some of the claims that are made, um, particularly strident dogmatic claims. Uh, so that's one answer, right? So that's mm-hmm. kind of addressing one very specific group. Um, Another answer to that question that I thought would be interesting uh, more for the, what I think are probably the listeners to this podcast within the Reformed world, uh, is that the Septuagint actually has a a very uh, interesting place within the thought world of the Reformers themselves. Um, And you see this uh, within magisterial Reformers uh, and and some of the others as well. Uh, They are, they are in a context of theological and sometimes political debates with uh, the Catholic magistrates uh, and magisterium over the nature of Scripture, Hmm. the authority of Scripture, who gets to say what it means, and so forth. And in the writings of the Reformers, uh, people like Turretin, like Calvin, and Melanchthon, Ah, uh, you find them discussing the Septuagint, uh, not a huge amount, uh, but if you open up, you know, uh, Turretin's uh, Elenctic theology, for example, you can find him discussing what the Septuagint is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melanchthon calls it a rough translation, uh, and so they're they're grappling with with the Septuagint from a a textual standpoint, uh, a historical t- standpoint, and a theological standpoint, uh, and this is something that I have only really just begin, begun to, to think more about uh, and to do a little bit more research about uh, the Septuagint within the Reformation context and, and then more broadly in the early modern context. You see the same kind of discussion to a certain extent in the writings of the English Puritans uh, who, are, who are asking similar kinds of questions. Uh, so it's a really fascinating uh, s- subject, a really fascinating uh, sort of area of inquiry. Uh, but but I would say, so far as I've read, uh, the, the Reformers are really thinking well about the Septuagint, what it is, uh, and how to evaluate its role for uh, Christian life and doctrine.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, coming into this podcast, I'm sure both Nick and I didn't think as much, but it sounds like the Septuagint has much more, um, not apologetic interest, but has much more to say about apologetics and defending scripture than we think it does coming into the study.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, it is uh, one of the most important textual witnesses to the Old Testament. Um, for, for one thing, you know, prior, so, you know, maybe some of your listeners uh, have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s or so.
2: Yeah, there was another one not discovered but New York Times just came out with the post yesterday. Yeah. Um so yesterday would have been the 11th of March. Yeah. Um so yeah, there's a well just came out with yeah. something. So it's it's in the news.
0: Yeah, 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 it's I mean it, it was a massive it was a massive discovery and it, we're still dealing with it as a scholarly community. And the reason it was so huge and important uh, is because prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh the only major textual witness to the Hebrew Bible was the Septuagint. Uh, Cause we, you know, we had the Masoretic text, which again is 10th century or so. Uh, but prior to that, we had no, we have very little other Hebrew textual evidence for the Hebrew Bible. That's earlier than the medieval period. And so when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, you know, they date to first century BC, second century, maybe a little earlier in some cases, they're written in Hebrew. So they are, you know, 12 to 1300 years older than the Masoretic text, And it just blew up the biblical studies world Mm -hmm. because now we have this much more ancient, much more contemporary textual evidence. Um, And, uh, you know, there's lots we could say about that, Uh, but uh, that, you know, Dead Sea Scroll evidence and the Septuagint together have a lot of apologetic impact, I think, for sure, in terms of the reliability of scripture.
1: I got kind of a dumb question. <laughs> I got to reel it back for a second. Okay. So um, that was fantastic just to kind of unpack all that. So as we're sitting here today and we're like, okay, where do I go from here? Uh, is there a best choice version of uh, NIV, ESV, King James? Uh, does it really matter? Are they all pretty
0: equal with, you know? In terms of translating the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I try to be as diplomatic as I can. <laughs> um, the difference between the ESV, NIV, NASB, etc., the difference between those versions is is really not the textual basis that they work from. Okay, you know they're all they're all working from the Masoretic text. The information we gained from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, is really not so much that the text was different than we thought it was, right? It was actually the opposite. You know, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the text has literally not changed mm. for 1,200 years. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it, it's really incredible. Now, there are exceptions to that. and Most scholarship tends to focus on the exceptions, right? Because they're more exciting. Uh, but the vast, <laughs> the vast bulk of evidence showed us that, yep, it's just exactly the same as it was 1,300 years ago. So, so there really is no reason to work from any textual basis aside from the Masoretic text. Um, now, with that said, some of the translation committees between ESV, NIV, NASB, etc., uh, some of them will deal with uh, the textual, uh, text-critical issues slightly differently from each other. Okay, So there are places uh, within the Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text, uh, that have some text-critical problems, right? And in those places, translation committees will appeal to other textual witnesses in order to resolve the difficulty, right? So in certain uh, cases, um, they will look at the Peshitta. The Peshitta it's a funny word. Sounds a little naughty. It's the Syriac. <laughs> But, <laughs> what, what just happened? <laughs> the the, the Peshitta is the Syriac translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so that's a different story uh, for somebody else to tell you about. Uh, but but it is another important textual witness to the Old Testament. Or the look at the Vulgate, sort of that Latin translation. Or the look at the Septuagint. Okay, um, and so all of those things are 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 places that translation may as well go. Um, when they wish to resolve a a textual difficulty. Um, So there's an example that I give uh, in my my class on the historical books, where uh, Saul is enthroned as king, okay? Uh, And the Masoretic Text uh, has something missing from it, okay? It says, Saul was years old when he became king and it just doesn't say a number, right? The sentence continues as if it's a sentence, but the number word isn't there. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a word for, uh, for one, but we know that Saul was older than one, right? King. <laughs> so there's a textual critical problem here, right? Something has dropped out over the course of transmission over the 1,000 years, right? And this is not like a gigantic theological question. It's like, well, how old was Saul, right? Um, and so in order to answer that question, you can look at different uh, translations of the Bible. Uh, but to answer that question, different translation committees will look at uh, different versions of the Old Testament, right? So um, just pull up something from my notes here so I can give you a little bit more uh, uh, detail. So it's 1 Samuel 13, 1. And the NRSV, for example, literally just leaves uh, dot, 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 right, in the text of the English Bible. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, okay, NRSV. Uh, The NIV says Saul was 30 years old, okay, when he became king. ESV says Saul lived for one year. And then became king. All right. So they're all working from the same textual basis, but they're dealing with it in different ways. All right. The ESV uh is trying to take the text at face value and explain it as, you know, it's not talking about how old uh, Saul was. It's just saying he w- it was one year before episode A and then episode B when he became king. Uh the NRSV just sort of punts and leaves a dot dot dot. The NIV appeals to the Septuagint. If you look at the NIV, for Samuel 13, 1, it says Saul was 30 years old. And right above the word 30, there's a superscript A, okay, depending on which version of the NIV. You look down in the margin, or we talked about the margins earlier, you'll see in the margin, it says in the NIV, a few late manuscripts of the Septuagint say 30, okay. Uh, And so in order to sort of resolve this textual situation, the NIV Translation Committee uses the Septuagint uh, as a textual witness. And if you go to the Septuagint, it does say in Greek uh, that he was 30 years old, okay? Um, So so again, um, there are different ways in which textual evidence is used by these different Bibles. Um, However, the vast, vast majority of the differences among these modern English Bible versions is just their general translation strategy, right? Like the NISB has this reputation for being more literalistic. The ESV is sort of more stylized or, uh, you know, educated, you know, aimed at an educated audience, this kind of thing. NIV is more accessible. That's the predominant difference among them, not so much the textual basis, uh, except in these sorts of little micro cases like this.
2: Yeah, that's helpful. Um... So, kind of to wrap this up in a little bow before we ask our, our last question for um, future stuff. So, it's it sounds like the Septuagint is not just some scholarly thing from two thousand years ago that we don't worry about anymore. It's it helps us understand like what was the world like, how did they translate these things, what were they thinking about these things, especially during Jesus's time, um, even before that a little bit too. And then it helps us understand that the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament that we now read, is like it's a verifiable text it's the septuagint shows us that it's a verifiable text and that also as english readers now uh, most of our audience the bible that they read in the new testament quotes from the septuagint or not like, like say not the their one septuagint but quotes from different manuscripts and stuff so it, it sounds much more accessible to your average person and actually helps us in our faith versus being like oh that's just for scholars i think about
0: is that right yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's there's two sides of the coin, right? On, on the one side of the coin, it's a, it's everything you just said, right? There, There's there's lots that the Septuagint does in defense of, you know, the Reformed tradition, our understanding of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, and so forth and so on. Uh, the other side of the coin is, yeah, there is some complexity there, right? We have to be mm-hmm. nuanced in how we think and talk about it. Uh, but as long as we can get those nuances right uh, then then the other side of the coin is there right mm-hmm. yeah and so I'm I'm
2: assuming after listening to this some some people are like why should I learn about this intuition why should I know anything about this stuff this seems like way beyond me um, but I know you've been doing a lot of work so you have some stuff coming out so can you talk about some of the stuff that you have coming out kind of aimed at this audience
0: right yeah so yeah um, I'll I'll mention two things. Um, The first thing I'll say probably isn't directly for your audience, but the next one, the second one will be. One is uh, I have uh, just came out maybe a couple of weeks ago now uh, is a handbook for Septuagint Research. I edited this uh, for Bloomsbury TNT Clark with a scholar named W. Edward Glenny. Uh, and he and I compiled these essays from 25 scholars, Septuagint specialists around the world, and it touches on all the different areas within Septuagint research uh, in an updated and technical way. So this is essentially a handbook that's a tool for people who are interested in a discipline beyond the introductory level, right? So so that's that's that exists. Um, you know, that's not probably your audience <laughs> yeah. or maybe some among your audience. I'm sure
2: there. we have some nerds who are going to want to buy that for sure.
0: Right, so the nerds can go check that out.
1: <laughs> Either they'll <laughs> have a copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: A handbook for Septuagint Research. Um, uh, the more accessible uh, tool that will be out uh, in the fall is a book that I have co-written with uh, Greg Lanier. Greg is uh, Associate Professor of New Testament at, in RTS at, their, at the uh, Orlando campus. Um, and he and I have done a couple of projects together related to the Septuagint. We have a book coming out with Crossway in the fall uh, that is literally called The Septuagint, What mm-hmm. It Is and Why It Matters. There we go.
1: Um, so <laughs> yeah.
0: That, that is probably, yeah, the thing to recommend here. And, and it's exactly what it sounds like, that book, first half of the book. Is what the Septuagint is second part is why it matters we talk about Old Testament reason it matters for the Old Testament reason it matters for the New Testament reasons it matters for uh, ministers in their ministry pulpit ministry today so hmm. um, so I would direct you towards that it's still going to be you know six months or so before, before it's there but uh, it is listed on Amazon so so you can check it out a bit. it's
2: official yeah it's, it's official. on Amazon <laughs> very nice yeah yeah we'd love to we'd love to talk about that once that comes out and and, and help the the listening world and evangelicals and stuff learn more about this but yeah. it used to be a neglected study, and I think is is gaining an interest now yeah uh, well, I'd love to do that That'd be great Well, great thanks for coming on, Dr. Ross. This has been I wouldn't say a better conversation. I knew it was going to be a good conversation, but a more nuanced <laughs> conversation than I was expecting, hitting on a lot more apologetic stuff, which I think is huge mm. for. Um, an audience that, that wants to learn more about this stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's
0: been really fun. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, uh, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure... This is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes.
2: Yeah. And you, after you rate and review or instead of writing review or doing everything all at once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines.
1: Uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully, you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology exactly
2: yeah and you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um our social media links it'll, it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast a specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading
1: the gospel further. Yep, all for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys
2: next time.